Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. I feel like I want to change the name because we're running, but I can't because we've invested all this time in branding and marketing. So anyway, welcome to this podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. You know, the other thing that's not true in these taglines is like lately we never talk we about what we're preaching, preaching about part. ever, yeah. ever. So anyway. Because at the end of the podcast, we do tend to point people to sermons and, right, just, you know. You know, just whatever. Go, go. If, anyway, yes, we just go to the real thing. Go straight to the source. But um, anyway. Goals, goals for later. What is astonishing you? What's astonishing me? Well, um, I just threw a pencil at you. I'm sorry. It was an accident. <laughs> What's astonishing me? Yeah, I did have something to talk about. It totally. Oh, yes. Here, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> so far, we are off to a stellar beginning. This is beginning. not a great Like, start. this is really, this is, not a great this is great. Is this like our 205th episode? Yes. And we, yeah, excellent. So um, often we do things in ministry that feel like um, nothing's happening. No one cares. It's not making any difference. And um, I feel that way. I don't know what way. you're talking about. You have no idea? I know, I know. I feel that way quite often. And uh, recently... That must be really hard for you. <laughs> it is very difficult for me. I'm, I'm getting therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, we had um, a couple, uh, Tony and Laliza, visit Derrida Church. And I met this couple 20-plus years ago when I moved to Charlotte uh, Tony was part of the uh, pastoral search committee that brought me to Charlotte, and they are wonderful, talented people, and I haven't seen them for years. So I was really happy to see them in worship the other day, and I stood in the sanctuary with them for about an hour talking with them after everyone left, and uh, we were just catching up, and uh, Lalisa said to me, you know, you did a lot of things when you were with us 20-whatever years ago, and you did a lot of teaching, you did a lot of work, and I noticed that after you left, that the pastors who came after you reaped the harvest of the seeds that you had sown, and I just want you to know that. It's really And it was so beautiful. encouraging because 20-plus years ago, I developed this fasting guide for the congregation. We had done, I had done uh, a pretty extensive study on the discipline of fasting. And so every Advent, every uh, Lenten season, I would give people this fasting guide. But then I would find most of the copies on the pew or on the (laughs) floor. When I followed up with people at the end of the season, they would say, no, I, I didn't really do it. And so after a number of years, I started doing it just sporadically, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe during Lent, maybe during Advent. And this year I decided I wasn't going to do it at all, that Mm -hmm. nobody cared, didn't make a difference. I would use it for my own Lenten discipline, but I I wasn't going to give it to the congregation again. But after that conversation with Tony and Lelisa, I felt convicted that I should just do it once again, right? Because yeah. that scripture came to mind, be not weary in well-doing, 
for you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so I offered it this past Sunday to the congregation, and I always, I walked them through it uh, because it really is a guide for planning Mm -hmm. your own fasting. And and I tell some stories around it, and and I take a, a good bit of time to do this. And I looked around the room, and heads were nodding, and eyeballs seemed engaged, um, I mean, just locked on to me as I was speaking. And I thought, well, this is this is different than what I'm accustomed to. And I almost didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, the scripture that comes to mind for me is just, you know, the beginning of Corinthians and like, you know, I planted and Apollos watered and you know mm-hmm. that. And I do think it's really hard when we have, you know, when we allow our understanding of following Jesus to be shaped by the surrounding culture. And so we are looking, we think that to be faithful means to be successful as the world would see it. And so we constantly evaluate whether or not something is working as opposed to whether or not it's faithful. And so I just think, but the other real tension in that, and I know that this is real for both of us is it, it's really hard to discern this practice that I have that I'm sharing that doesn't appear to be bearing fruit. Do I need to stay steadfast in doing it and stay, and hold the course because I believe that, you know, it is faithful and it is going to bear fruit. But, you know, the, the other option is you could be clinging to something that is just a tradition that is something that was right for another season but is not right for this season Uh, I mean so I think it's just really hard to find the balance of being really brave and curious about what what Lord what are you doing how can I partner with you in what you're doing and am I doing something that appears air quotes, unsuccessful or appears air quotes successful, but is out of line with actually the work of maturing these disciples and sharing the gospel with folks who don't yet know the goodness of life with Jesus. Like, I just think it's that real tension where on the one hand, you don't want to just walk around you know, with your thumb in the air trying to see where the wind goes and what's going to be most pleasing and enjoyable for folks. But on the other hand, you don't want to remain like blind and stubbornly persisting in doing the thing that you know how to do, even though it's no longer producing fruits, but just scared to tell the truth to yourself about, hey, the thing that the Lord is calling us to do now is something that we're going to have to be beginners at, and that's going to be uncomfortable, and that's not going to immediately bear fruit, and that's just also part of being a disciple of Jesus. And I think that's why, you know, it so comes down always to the sort of duh, obvious realization that we have to be deeply prayerful people because the only way you know is to be like seeking the the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and just really laying yourself out before God and saying, you're going to have to show me whether to keep this going or let it go, because how can I know without the grace 
of revelation from you. Yeah, and um, I'm glad you mentioned that because this is an issue um, that is for all of us who are seeking to follow Jesus, not simply church leaders. And I'm sure that there are many people who are listening to us right now who, you know, they're engaged in something, they're tired, they're frustrated, and they want to quit. And for me, I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit. God did not tell me to quit. If you had asked me, well, is God telling you to stop doing this? Mm, honestly, I would have had to um, say, no, I just, I don't see anything happening. Therefore, I want to quit. Right. And I think part of the thing that makes us want to quit is because without even being aware of it, what we're what we're experiencing is this idea of like, oh, you're wasting your time. Sure. And I think we have this allergy as Americans, even in the body of Christ, to quote, wasting our time, which is just really interesting if you really step away from that and examine it and go, well, is it a waste of time to be faithful to the Lord? And if, is it, is it not a waste of time? If you are faithful, does there need to be some extra other result in order for that not to be a quote waste of time? Like that's just, I mean, it, it is a capitalist consumer way of evaluating that time Time can't be, quote, wasted. Time must be productive. I mean, that's just, and that is something that we bring to us from the empirical culture, not from um, the worldview of creation and shalom of sort of trusting that the goodness of God is um, the dominant force in the universe and that we have, we are called to periods of labor and to periods of rest and to periods of non-productive worship, which yeah. is so hard for us. Yeah, one of the reasons we do this segment of the podcast is to cultivate the discipline of asking ourselves, what is God doing in my life right now that I may not see? I mean, because God does things that are big and obvious and wonderful, and we celebrate those, but God is also doing things that are small and not obvious. But when we cultivate the discipline of looking for them, we will see them. And I, I needed this conversation with this couple um, mm -hmm. because I probably would not have gone forward with the fasting teaching. Well, and I just think it's also really interesting um, just how our, again, how our, part of it I think is how our brains are made or maybe damaged in the fall that, you know, we have this negative cognitive bias so that whatever is painful or fearful is the thing that captivates our attention and energy. And this is not a call to ignore problems, but I do think, you know, it's really, it's really easy to slip into an, a spirit of, oh, I will enjoy and appreciate life once everything is okay. And that, of course, you know, on this side of eternity until the fullness of the kingdom of God is realized is not, you know, is not in the cards for us. And so this ability to say, I am, I am really aware and I am really engaged with the um, risky and challenging and difficult and uncomfortable work of resisting um, 
powers and principalities of this world and dismantling the systems of death and oppression and sin. And I also am finding my being and my fullness and my abundance in the kingdom of God, which is among us. And I think like I, you know, I mean, it's just every time we do this, I just feel like I should pull back the curtain and say like, I'm terrible at being astonished. Like I, it, it is like feels very artificial and um, just unnatural to me every time we do it. And I, and I feel like that's why I need it even more. Yeah. And sometimes we sort of cheat and and talk about what we're astonished on that's bad, right? Which is really not the point. The point is to say, can you cultivate a um a wisdom and a maturity where you are seeking and dwelling and exalting the goodness of God regardless of your circumstances? Yes. And are you can you be aware of and celebrating and championing what God is doing. And we have to do that in order to stay engaged in this work and, and, and fully stay, alive. And, and right? to stay encouraged. And to stay spiritually alive. But I just, I mean, it's really, really hard for me um, because on the one hand, you know, I think in our culture, it can sound like bragging. Like you feel like, oh, I'm going to do a, am I doing a victory lap here? Which doesn't feel appropriate. I, I don't know. Like it's just mm. really, it, it's just unnatural. It is unnatural. And so it's hard to do it well. Um, and it does sort of, to me, always feel like, well, loving Jesus, like the least I can do, <laughs> the least I can do in loving Jesus is just to worry about things. It's just mm. to be upset about things, right? Like I, like I can't fix things, but at least I can feel bad about them pretty much all the time. And so, I, you know, I think it's just really hard to shift out of that framework. But I don't, I mean, I do not believe that that is what abundant life in Jesus looks like. And I do not believe that we can be used as effectively by the spirit from a, from an internal spirit of anxiety and worry and shame and guilt. And as we can from an internal space of, peace and joy and resting in our acceptance and confidence in um, just the triumphant goodness of God, not the triumphant goodness of me. Yeah. I, I'm I neither think, triumphant nor good. <laughs> what keeps it from feeling like a, a victory lap for me um, and just plain old bragging is that place in scripture where Paul says, um, that God does exceedingly abundantly more above all we could ever ask, hope, or imagine according to God's power that is at work in us to God be glory and honor forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is all about what God is doing in me, through me, and I would add in spite of me. Okay, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So what is astonishing Kate Murphy today? Um. Well... Um, actually, when you said that, it reminded me of a really unexpected and beautiful moment that happened last week. Um, a young man from a church I had served before I came to the Grove had reached out kind of out of the blue and asked um, if we could get together. And so I, I just think that it's really um, important 
that when you have a pastoral relationship with people, it's non-transactional and that you can really try to stay um, connected with people in in appropriate ways. And so um, I... I really, I wanted to see him. I was curious as to what was going on. I had, was a little, um, trepidatious about what, you know, just what might be coming. Um, but I mean, it turns out that he is getting married and he, um, had asked me if I would do the, um, marriage ceremony, which was just really meaningful to me. But he also, and on like in all honesty, I had completely forgotten about this, that after, I mean, he had just had a kind of a rough season and, um, had reached out and I, and I do kind of remember now just sort of saying to him, just having conversation about like what I really felt were his really valuable gifts and, uh, um, a connection about just, um, what I thought he might be called to do in the world. And to me, like that was just a very casual, I mean, not casual, but I mean, it was just, it was just a conversation. I meant it. It was true. And then, you know, he did end up, you know, for a while walking down that path, which led to other paths, which I mean, to me, you know, I've been sort of aware of his story and it just felt like, oh, that, you know, that's just your story. That is that is just you walking out your gifting, being led by the spirit. Like that's just, um, and it was really interesting because I just haven't been a part of his life for, I mean, whatever, 10 years, 12 years. And, and it was the, it was the same moment of someone coming in saying like, Hey, I just, when I think about my life and pivotal moments, um, one of those stories has you in it. And honestly, if you had asked me before sitting down with him, like, do you think that you were, I mean, ironically, like successful as a pastor in that context, or do you think that you were, I mean, I just, when I look back at that season, like mostly what I see is just what I know now that I didn't know then and kind of how I would have done things differently. And, you know, I just, I sort of regret that people I have been in relationship with previously didn't get the benefit of the growth that has happened in my life now. And so it was just like this really beautiful moment of realizing like, oh, um, there, there are times that the Lord uses us and like, clearly it was of the Lord, but it was also just like, it was easy, right? Like it wasn't like this terrifically difficult thing that I had to learn how to do that was unnatural for me or what I mean like it just was a really beautiful moment and it it was a really encouraging moment to think like we're always kind constantly evaluating ourselves at how well we're doing and serving the people that we love and that we're honored to serve and I think we're trying to you know find that balance of not um you know not projecting anxiety onto our congregations but also not just phoning it in and just feeling like, well, anything I do is, is sufficient and good enough, like having kind of a healthy tension. And I think sometimes I lean on the whole, like, well, let me, let me make sure I don't let myself off the hook. Like, let me make sure that I'm really not, um, you know, 
not operating in a false sense of being more mature than I actually am or, you know, any, and so, I mean, it just, it was a really beautiful moment because I think you and I are the same that, you know, our, um, what we want is to be faithful to Jesus and to be faithful to the saints in our community. Right. And what I believe wholeheartedly is that it is the work of Jesus on the cross that has saved the world and the kingdom that God is establishing that is restoring and redeeming and birthing life. And so what we want to do is not our own thing, but participate in what God is doing. And um, it's really nice to know that sometimes the things that God is calling us to do is really hard and uncomfortable. (laughs) It takes a lot of effort. And sometimes it's as simple as just having a really honest conversation and saying to somebody like, Hey, here are the gifts that I see in you that I think are so incredibly valuable and you don't, and you don't see them in yourself or you don't know your sacred worth. So anyway, it was a really, it was, it was a great gift. Um, for you. Awesome. What are you thinking about? Tell me, you go first. Me go first. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking we do about a back and forth thing. Here, oh, that's right. right. Yeah. I'm thinking about a couple of things today, and I have... I have a feeling we're only going to get to your things, which is fine. I was about to say I have thoughts and feelings. I may have more feelings than thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, okay, so first of all, recently, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which is the largest evangelical denomination, Christian denomination in the U.S., I believe they have... 13 million members recently. The Southern Baptist Convention has um, removed from their fellowship their largest congregation, uh, which is a Saddleback Community Church, um, pastored and planted by the well-known author uh, Rick Warren of Purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church, purpose-driven other things. Yeah, he's retired he's now. He's retired but that's now. His There's a new yeah. pastor, and the new pastor uh, has a wife who preaches. And so, four times, four since times, 2020. four, four times. times. Uh, so, um, within the past couple of years, the church has ordained three women, and so the Southern Baptist Convention has removed them from their fellowship. Not because of, you know, abuse of children or mismanagement of money, but because they have ordained women to be teaching pastors. And um, yeah, I, I have I have feelings about that. And so let me, Instead of talking about the Southern Baptist Convention, I probably should make a confession first. My confession is this. I learned, it was revealed to me through the ministry of many teachers at Bethel University and at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. It was revealed to me that As a man in Western society, I am socialized to see women as objects and to see women as 
mysterious puzzles that you can never quite figure out. And so they're just kind of these almost alien creatures that we have relationships with. Um, and so I believe are, we're from Venus. Yes, yes, Venus and Mars. And so um, I've been socialized to easily dismiss a woman who disagrees with me as crazy. I'm given permission to say, oh, she's just crazy, right? And here's the revelation. I believe the word is hysterical. Oh, yeah. Like with the root that's the same word as like hysterectomy. Yes. Like of, uh, mm-hmm. yes. Yes, exactly. So here's the revelation. And it, like the whole world, when I, when I say this, the whole world should say, duh. But the revelation given to me by my teachers, my biblical theological teachers that my society blinded me to, like blinded me to this, is that women are people. Women are people. Like that, it's so, like I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed that I'm even saying this. Um, and I'm feeling a little vulnerable because I know that sometimes, well, in many contexts, when the issue of racism comes up and controversy around racism, the thought that's in the back of my head is that people are actually debating my humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, it, that's a thing. Like, mm-hmm. for someone, my humanity is in question. And so when it comes to this, um, and, and I'm thinking about something in the church world and in the world of inter- entertainment, uh, but when it comes to this, I am aware that it just, it feels like we are debating women's humanity, which is absolutely insane. And so um, we see in scripture um, you know that place, well first of all day of Pentecost the spirit is poured out on the church um, and Peter stands up and gives a sermon where he quotes the prophet Joel in the last days the Lord says I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Right? But also we see in scripture where Paul says um, to a church, let the women keep silent. And so that's where the Southern, Southern Baptists stand. And they have their conviction that that means that women ought not preach. And there's this debate among them about uh, functioning as a pastor versus the office of pastor. They're, they're trying. Well, anyway, they're, they're, they're wrestling with that. But mostly they come out on the side of Women can't be pastors because of that scripture. Never mind that Paul is talking about a specific congregation to a specific group of women and says, okay, those women are in that congregation are being disruptive. Tell them to be quiet. Um, I, I am deeply disappointed, but I probably should not be surprised that the Southern Baptist Convention would 
not only remove Saddleback Church, but I think it was probably about five different congregations around the country because they have ordained women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the one thing I'm thinking about uh, from the church world. Connected to that from the world of entertainment, this is picture the controversy around Rihanna and a picture with her partner, um, rapper uh, ASAP Rocky, and their child. They're on the beach. It's a, I think it's the cover of Vogue. They're on the beach. She is walking in front of him, reaching back. She's holding his hand, and with his other hand, he's holding their child, kissing their child. And men online are losing their minds, and they're saying, here we go. See, this is what we, you, 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 you give women power, and now we are emasculated, and the society, the whole world is going to pit right now. And if you just take, take a look at the picture, um, their hands are, um, it's, not a, it's not like a, a hard grip. She is not pulling him, yanking. It is a soft hold. Um, besides I mean, I think, that. I think the challenge is, were the genders reversed, everyone would think it, no was problem. A, yes. it was a beautiful picture of a family. And the criticism of, Black men, well, we, we make babies and we don't care for them. And here, here is a man holding his child, kissing his child. In the 80s, black women in this country were caricatured as welfare queens. And so a whole generation of black women gone to college, gotten degrees, become professionals, are, and are doing well. And now the criticism is, well, they're just emasculating black men. It is bananas. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, this is what, I mean, it's Kimberly Crenshaw who does the work on um, naming the term intersectionality. Like, I think sometimes if you are uncomfortable talking about, um, you know, the, what it would look like for there to be liberation and real reconciliation and unity between white and black folks and if you are a person who feels like that conversation is not um is not helpful is creating tension i mean sometimes it's helpful to to look at the same dynamics within in terms of relationships between people of different genders and then you recognize that yes like there are just a lot of people in the world whose socialized understanding of masculinity is what it means to be a man is I'm not a woman, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I am different to and superior to women. And I think, you know, there's been this big debate in the church um, about, you know, this remarketing of it used to be just pure hierarchy. It was, you know, God, then men, then women. And then people said like, well, no, it's not, um, it's not a hierarchy, it's complementarianism, right? So it's not that men are better than women, it's just that men are different than women in a way that means men can do everything women do, but women can't do things that men do. And so, but it's not a hierarchy. I mean, and like the big, you yeah. know, reveal make, is- Make it make sense. Right, it's right? soil and green is people. <laughs> like uh, the patriarchy 
I mean, complementarianism is the patriarchy in our, in our, it's just better marketing. Right. And I, you know, if that's the way you in a world that feels like it's falling apart, that's attractive to a lot of people. I mean, just structure and, and a hierarchy where I am not where I want to be, but at least I'm better than the people underneath me. I mean, it really helps people say like, well, knowing where I am in the world that is feels better to me than a whole new kind of world that is unfamiliar to me and maybe it will be worse, right? And so I think, you know, the more that the current power structures oppress and deny your humanity, the more open you are to a new way of being alive in the world. But the more that the power structures pretend and give the illusion of giving you an advantage, the more threatening and scary it can be to imagine something different. And what we hear over and over again is this idea is like, there's no way in the world that everyone can be okay. That's not possible. That's the lie. So what we have to do is create a system where we distribute quality of life along a scale of deservingness and worthiness. And we, we need to give agency to people who are capable of living their lives and other people's lives well and, and deny agency from other people. And I just think it's important to see it as a spectrum. Like you see that right now the Taliban is in Afghanistan in power again. And they have said, despite what they said during negotiations, like, Oh, um, that, you know, women are now no longer allowed to go to school past sixth grade. Women are not allowed to leave the house without a male escort. Women must be completely covered from head to toe. There is no education. They're not allowed to work. And, and why? It's because the Taliban have a worldview, a religious worldview that says women are not suitable for these roles. That is just not what they were created and purposed by God to do. And, you know, it's not it is a scale and a spectrum. So that is an extreme. Also on that same scale and spectrum is the Catholic church saying men and women are both created in the image of God, but only men can lead communities and only men can preach and women just are, they're fine, but they're not capable of playing that role. And it's the same as saddle. I mean, as the Southern Baptists have been very clear, like nothing about the Southern Baptist view of humanity of nothing about their anthropology has changed it has always been there are levels of humanity the top level of humanity is white men second to white men is probably i don't know i feel like there's a little play yet. like it used to be white women over black men now it might be black men it over white women which it depends on where you are right mm -hmm. but i mean it, the hierarchy has been the same and i think you know, when you talk about just being socialized to see women as objects, I think the truth is, and and our conscious mind will will fight this tooth and nail. But I mean, as a white person, I am socialized to see black people as um, inherently less human than white people. And I am socialized sometimes to have a benign sense of like, oh, black people, if they just get enough help from us, they'll be able to be fully human like we are. But this idea that black human, black people are 
fully equipped and gifted in their own humanity without respect to white people's opinions or approval. I mean, that is just really goes against generations of socialism that I, socialization that I have inherited. And, you know, the the deep irony is like the deeper I go into looking at the world and seeking to understand what's it like, what is it like to be human for a person who is not a privileged white woman, the deeper I go into doing the work of trying to form authentic relationships and trying to be a part of a healthy and a holy multi-ethnic community, the deeper I go into this work, the more painfully aware I become of my own socialization, which is one reason why people say if we just didn't talk about it, it would go away. Because for white people, it would. It would. Right? And so I think that's what's a really just hard thing to understand. But like when you talk about why, I mean, I'm grateful. I'm incredibly grateful to hear not just women, but men say like, that's nuts that the Southern Baptist Church the Southern Baptist denomination would say that these aren't real churches anymore because they have women preaching. That's nuts, not just on a sort of cultural way, but it's just contrary to the gospel, right? Like it's just a contrary to the gospel. And I think for me, you know, we have this idea and we don't, we have, we have this concept as a core Christian classic doctrine of Trinity and we don't know what to do with it. Right. And so we, like in the Presbyterian church, we designate one Sunday a year as Trinity Sunday and all the pastors stand up front and they're like, it's not that one is three and three and is one, but like, it kind of is but like, it doesn't mean this and it doesn't, well, we don't know what it means, but we know it's true. And it's really important that you believe in it. And you sing holy, holy, holy. Right? And we don't, but we don't, we're like, literally you hear pastors talk about like, this is so esoteric and it's so absolutely and it doesn't have any practical applications to our life together. So like, what are we Mm -hmm. doing with this idea? Friends, Trinity is an alternative to hierarchy. Yeah, that's good. Right? That's, That's why it matters to be able to say that God is fully God only in the three person unity of spirit, creator, father, and Christ Jesus. Like it's only in this interlocking web of mutuality that the fullness of God is realized. It's not father on top, Jesus number two, spirit number three. It's not hierarchy. And I feel like Trinity, it one of the reasons it just blows our mind and we can't understand is that we we can understand one family with the dad on top and the mom underneath and the kids in descending birth order. We're like, oh, that's one family. But we can't understand a oneness that is not contingent upon a hierarchy where people know and submit to their right place. And so, you know, that's what we ought to be asking about is like, now that we are in the body of Christ, we are participating in the oneness of God. And our communities should not look like the demonic hierarchies of the world, right? They should look like participating. So the the vulnerability, the mutuality, the interdependence that we see in particularly in the life of Jesus and that Jesus being in constant relationship with the father, but being free um, to 
to say yes or no to the father's will and choosing to say yes. And the father being dependent on the son and the son being dependent on the father and the son saying to the disciples like, hey, my time here is coming to an end, but it's better for you that I'm leaving because I'm sending you the advocate, the spirit that there's there's an essential role that I have played. And now there's, you know, so I mean, just- And when the spirit comes, the spirit points to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I just think, you know, I, I, on the one hand, like I'm grateful for people pointing out that this is, um, this is a, that this is insane and it's, and it's painful. And I'm also just want to say, and I feel like I have a little bit of an understanding of kind of how it might feel as a black person when a white person discovers, you know, disparities in healthcare outcomes and is outraged. And you're just like, yeah, I've been, this isn't new news to me, right? Like it is not new news to me that the Southern Baptist church does not think that I'm human. Like that's old news. I know that. And it is just like, it's not new news to you that the Southern Baptist church is not willing or interested in repenting of racism or looking at systemic racism in this culture, like doesn't see a problem with that. So the idea that this is a hierarchical institution that doesn't fully value the humanity of everyone like color me not shocked like this is they I mean they've been very straightforward with us and um and I think the other just really important context to that story is you know for a long time um in the 90s and in the early 2000s when the child sex abuse scandal was breaking out in the Catholic Church a lot of Protestants stood back and we patted ourselves on the back and we're like, see, that's what happens over there. Like, that's how we know that that system mm-hmm. is wrong and twisted. And there, you know, that, and really said, that's a problem of celibacy. And that's a problem with a lot of gay men becoming priests, right? Yeah. Like that's how we understood it. When then just in the last, I'd say five to 10 years, a movement every bit as broad as in the Catholic church has become exposed in the, Southern Baptist and other evangelical churches of pastors abusing children, abusing women, and then just getting traded around in a culture of secrecy and not being dealt with. And, and what you're recognizing is friends, this kind of destructive behavior happens in hierarchies where some people are viewed as more human than others, where some people are given total spiritual authority over others, then they also say, I have, you don't have bodily autonomy either. That And, and so for what the other coda of what happened of this deliberation with the Southern Baptist Convention is that these churches who had transgressed by ordaining women were disfellowshipped, but the churches that buried abuse and traded pastors and kept pastors that they knew were, those churches are fine. Those churches have not been dis. I think that one church had been disfellowshipped. So, you know, it's taken 10 years 
for the Southern Baptist Convention to even have a commission to study, hey, there's a lot of sexual abuse going on in here. And we say that that human sexuality is one of the most important expressions of being in right relationship with Jesus. And we say that we have this hierarchy to protect the purity of the body. And then here is what we all recognize is just egregious sin and harm, the abuse, sexual abuse of children and young people. But we just, we, we're not going to look at that. We don't want to talk about it. And we don't want to examine whether what we're doing is creating a culture that allows these kinds of things to flourish. We're just going to say, you know, what, what are we going to do? It just, it just happens sometimes and not look at how are we teaching humans who are men to understand their gender identity and to understand their sexuality. Can we do it in a way that does not weaponize men against women or children. Um, And I mean, the easier thing to do is just to clamp down harder on the hierarchy and say, if women knew their place, children wouldn't be abused by men. Like that, that's the bottom line. If women were more, if adult women were more submissive, then men would not have to coerce or abuse children and teenage girls. But it's these adult women who are emasculating their men. Thinking for themselves. Getting jobs. What? And not being being independent and not, you know, dependent and submissive to their to men that is making this happen. So. This past Sunday it was looking at the Beatitudes um, for preaching the last three where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart the peacemakers and the persecuted and just looking at those three how if you are pure in heart you have this single-minded devotion to god you will be a peacemaker that is you will stand up for justice you will stand up for those who are oppressed and when you do that it means you are disrupting systems you're disrupting ways that people benefit from injustice and the suffering of others and so you will be persecuted um, uh, for that and you know, it's very easy for me and others to talk about how that is true uh, in society and in the world. But what is often left out is that those things also have to be confronted in the church, that there are people in the church who benefit from oppression. And throughout the history of the church, when the church, I mean, the, the church is a mixture of, of, of godliness and worldliness. And we are in this constant state of, of of working the worldliness out of ourselves and out of the church. And so there, there are points in the church's history where the church tried to do evangelism, great, but at the edge of a sword, not great. Um, right. the, the church was all about the transatlantic slave trade. And uh, as we've been talking about, uh, uh, misogyny and the subjugation of women. And throughout history also, the church has not given up any of that without some kind of fight, some kind right. of struggle. Well, and I think just the the bottom line is we, the really the primary call of the gospel, and certainly in, I think the Pauline epistles is like, hey, you're going to be born again. You're going to become a new person in Christ Jesus. And I think that we have always focused on behaviors, right? So you know, it could be you used to be a criminal and now you're going to be law abiding. It could be in modern times, you used to be an unsuccessful loser. And now with Christ, you are going to be really successful and everyone's going to envy you. And then that's how they're going to come to Christ. Right. But what we we've focused on behaviors 
and outcomes, what we have not focused on an actual internal transformation of your humanity and I, and how you are not going to conform to cultural expectations in the same way after you become a new person in Christ as you did before you became a new person in Christ. And I know that, you know, one of the tension points, and I was going to talk about the Dilbert guy, but we don't have time. But, you know, one of the tension parts of like looking bravely at the depth of the destruction um, between of the relationship between white humans and black humans. Like one of the challenges of looking at that is that white people often say like, well, this just makes me feel like it's not okay to be white, right? Like, so if this is true, if you're asking for this, then it's just like you just hate white people and it's not okay to be white and you're asking me to hate myself and I don't want to, you know, and and in the same way. And men are saying like, oh, y'all are just asking us to hate ourselves and give up being a man and say that it's bad to be a man. The truth is no one says it is bad to be white and no one says it is bad to be a man. But If your expression of your whiteness or your masculinity requires the subjugation of other humans, that is not an authentic expression of humanity. Humans do not need to dominate um, other humans in order to be fully alive in Christ. Now, the devil would like to disrupt our human relationships and our human friendships. And you cannot be friends. You cannot be in an authentic relationship with someone else if you have power and control over them, right? And so I think this is like in the church, Jesus, as he's leaving, says, I'm not calling you servants anymore because you're about to get the Holy Spirit. And once you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be part of my body. You are going to be, you're going to understand what I'm doing here. You're going to be part and extension of my mission. So you're not going to be my servant anymore. You're going to, we're going to have unity. You're going to be my friends. And that is the way that we're called to have a healthy community in the church is to be friends with one another. And so friendship has to start from a place of, you know, mutual awe and real equality and respect where we tell the truth, where we seek the good, where we um, believe that the person across the table from us is actually as capable of goodness as we are. And so if we've been hurt by that person, we would go to them and say, you know, hey, this is my, this is what happened. This is what I need for our relationship to be restored. Like we, we, but I mean, the world does not have a place for that kind of humanity at all, particularly across ethnic or gender lines. One more thing. And I know our time is up, but I just want the record to show, please let the record show that if anyone offers Hanley Hinton, <laughs> my wife and life partner, an opportunity that she wants to take that will make her a billion dollars, I'm going to be like, know, where y'all want me to be at in the photo? <laughs> right. In the back? 
I'm chilling in the back. Colin, Colin has said since the day we met, like, I will happily stay home with the children. Could Listen. you just make enough money so that I could stay home with the children? And I do think, like, not for nothing, and again, he never specifically outlawed me from talking about him on the podcast, so loophole. And he doesn't listen, so sorry. But, um, you know, I think it takes an incredibly strong and, like, healthily confident person to be able to be partnered and not be threatened by good things that happen to the other person, right? And that, you know... Because if you love them and they love you back, that means if good is happening for them, good's going to happen to you. It's, it, you're If you are one. Right, and I just think, like, strong men are not threatened by strong women. And I think that white people who have done the work of understanding, hey, this is this is the history of the world. This is how the Lord has opened my eyes. This is my acceptance and okayness comes from God. I'm created in the image of God. No matter what has happened or is happened and no matter what mistakes I've made, I'm allowed to be a human on a journey and I am still worthy in God's eyes of God's love and forgiveness. Then I'm not threatened by having these conversations about how whiteness has been destructive because that's not who I am. And that's not a system I'm interested in upholding. And I really am by the grace of God, like longing for the day when God makes us new. And I don't want to wait until I die and go to heaven, right? Like I do think that God is alive and at work in the world, bringing redemption and reconciliation here and now. And that's going to mean change. And I believe that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will be faithful to us in the truth here and now. Let the church say amen. So we're out of time and everyone should check out what is God is doing at God's church, Derida Presbyterian Church. They should go to the website, which is deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. You should go to the, wait, did I get it wrong? You got it right. Okay. And you should go to their podcast and to their YouTube channel, Derida, the podcast on the Podbeam website, and you can worship with them at 11 o'clock at D-E-R-I-T-A, Presbyterian Church. And if you want to find out what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can worship with us at 10 a.m. where the dress code is wear clothes. You can check out um, our podcast on iTunes, our YouTube channel. You can sign up for our newsletter. Did I forget anything? That's it. Like, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.